Today, President Bush announced a plan to make the smallpox vaccine available to all Americans in an effort to guard against a bioterrorist attack. Good afternoon. Since our country was attacked 15 months ago, Americans have been forced to prepare for a variety of threats we hope will never come. We have stepped up security at our ports and borders. We've expanded our ability to detect chemical and biological threats. We've increased support for first responders. We've made public our made our public health care system better able to track and treat disease. By preparing at home and by pursuing enemies abroad, we're adding to the security of our nation. Thank the members of my team who are here who are adding to the security of our nation. One potential danger to America is the use of the smallpox virus as a weapon of terror. In 1980, the World Health Organization declared that smallpox had been completely eradicated. And since then, there has not been a single natural case of the disease anywhere in the world. We know, however, that the smallpox virus still exists in laboratories. And we believe that regimes hostile to the United States may possess this dangerous virus. Protect our citizens in the aftermath of September the 11th. We are evaluating old threats in a new light. Our government has no information that a smallpox attacks is imminent. Yet it is prudent to prepare for the possibility that terrorists would kill indiscriminately, who kill indiscriminately, would use diseases as a weapon. Our public health agencies began preparations more than a year ago. Today, through the hard work of our Department of Health and Human Services, ably led by Tommy Thompson, and state and local health officials, America has stockpiled enough vaccine and is now prepared to inoculate our entire population in the event of a smallpox attack. Americans and anyone who would think of harming Americans can be certain that this nation is ready to respond quickly and effectively to a smallpox emergency or an increase in the level of threat. And today I'm directing additional steps to protect the health of our nation. I'm ordering that the military and other personnel who serve America in high-risk parts of the world receive the smallpox vaccine. Men and women who could be on the front lines of a biological attack must be protected. This particular vaccine does involve a small risk of serious health considerations. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. 
Hi, this is Robbie Martin. Thanks for tuning in to our bonus episode. If you're listening right now, you are a Patreon subscriber. And we very much appreciate your support. The amount of days and many, many hours that went into the research of just this podcast is just for you guys. Now, we'll probably unlock part of it later, or maybe the full thing at some point, but uh, for now, this is a Patreon exclusive. In, in a nutshell, this is sort of a spiritual sequel to the Anthrax trilogy that I put out earlier, along with the 20th anniversary of the 2001 Anthrax attacks. But this is something that I, you know, if you think Anthrax could be described as being memory hold in the public consciousness, then the Bush administration war on terror era smallpox vaccination rollout program is something that you could say is a memory hole within a memory hole within a memory hole. It's been so buried that virtually nobody, like almost no one that I brought this up to remembers it. I would say like half of the people I bring up anthrax to remember it and can recall a little detail about it. Maybe 70% of people I bring up anthrax to have a vague memory of it, but really don't know anything about it. And then like 30% of people altogether just don't remember it at all. I mean, just in my anecdotal asking around, I would say maybe only like 5% of the people I've talked to about this know anything about it and actually remember it happening. Maybe a few people are sort of vaguely like, yeah, that sounds like something that happened, but I don't remember anything about it. That's more of the common reaction I've gotten. So what is this podcast going to be about? Well, it's going to be about a parallel story that took place around the same time as the 2001 anthrax hysteria, but was a strong public policy proposal being heavily pushed by the Bush administration, but was also pushed by the Clinton administration before it. Now, I was asked to come on this really great podcast called the Guerrilla History Podcast to talk about the 2001 anthrax attacks. And both of the hosts, Aiden and Henry, were amazing. Henry specifically has a science biology background. So it was really great to sort of have my work scrutinized, but then also, you know, appreciated by uh, the two hosts. So thank you guys if you're listening to this. And during that conversation, they asked me a question that was, what were, what was some of the most impactful or you know, some of the domestic policy that was born out of the 2001 anthrax attacks that came out of the attacks um, in some form. That was, that's a paraphrasing of their question. But when I answered that question, one of the obvious ones that came to mind was the Patriot Act, because, you know, just the timing of it, who the letters were sent to, Dashiell and Leahy, who were asking for sort of a delay on the Patriot Act, So that, I mean, the Patriot Act was definitely one, but I didn't fully realize until doing this podcast how many pieces of domestic legislation were born out of the anthrax attacks. And one of the main ones that I'm going to talk about today is the hysteria over a smallpox bioterrorist attack that was riding off of the hysteria generated by the anthrax attacks. So the Bush administration did not immediately go full cylinder, you know, trying to link Iraq to the anthrax attacks. They kind of peppered it out and stretched it out until Colin Powell did that 
speech where he held up the prop anthrax vial. But what they did do right off of the back of the anthrax attacks was really push for and lobby the public for a basically a mandatory smallpox vaccination program because of this idea that terrorists could attack us with smallpox and kill millions of people. Now, this may sound unbelievable what I'm telling you now, but the Bush administration spent an awful lot of energy simultaneously with the invasion of Iraq. It seemed like the White House itself, Bush, Wolfowitz, even Cheney, you know, other than worrying about or whatever they were doing with the anthrax attacks domestically, the FBI was mostly handling that. CDC was mostly handling that. But what was the Bush administration actually working on? Where they were, they seemed to be working on this smallpox vaccination rollout and sort of proposing it and working on it behind the scenes in October 2001. Something that they spent an, a lot of energy on. And it's just something that surprisingly has gotten lost in history. So what I'm going to do today, and this is probably going to be a two-part episode. This is not going to be another five-hour belter like our Bio One Rudy Giuliani American Media Inc. Inquirer episode was. This is probably going to be divided in two parts. So I'm not going to be able to tell you the entire story in this part. But with the continuation of it, you're going to get a, a rather large and dense timeline of information. Just sort of trying to not even necessarily jog any memories because honestly, even doing a lot of this research for myself didn't jog any memories or loosen any memories that I had. Oftentimes I will rely on a, let's say, a strange memory that I remember from something like 9-11 or anthrax as it was happening and sort of lean on that and be like, yeah, that's something strange that still pops out in my head. And I experienced that memory firsthand. I didn't read about, you know, some conspiracy website unpacking these anomalies. I saw it like on TV or something. And with smallpox, I don't have anything like that to lean on or to hold on to. I virtually, I don't remember this myself personally. I don't remember almost any of this myself. I remember there was this general concept at a certain point of like bioterrorism and a vaccine, but that's about it. And beyond that, I didn't really think about it much. But I think in lieu of the COVID-19 pandemic and in lieu of all the politicization of how fractured and divided we become over the COVID-19 pandemic, how, you know, almost everyone who's skeptical or against the vaccine seems to identify right. Almost everyone who's pro the vaccine or who's taking it seems to identify left. Although, what are the actual numbers showing of people who have actually gotten vaccinated? Regardless of what they think about it, I'd be, I'd be interested to see like a legitimate poll that's like violating the HIPAA <laughs> regulations or whatever they get the data from. Can't they actually like, you know, because if you polled people, they're not going to tell the truth. That's the problem right now is we're getting an awful lot of posturing where a lot of people are cosplaying as civil libertarians on the right about the vaccine. And I understand a true civil libertarian resistance to a lot of the mandates and those kind of things. It's, it is pretty draconian. Um, but then at the same time, it's like, who's actually genuine. And I think what's really interesting to go back down this road of this smallpox bioterrorism hysteria is that what you'll find is that most of the people and there's polling actually to reflect this, that were ready to take a vaccine for no reason, for not even a pandemic, a smallpox vaccine. Most of the people who are ready to take a smallpox vaccine were 
right of center or were Bush supporters. There was an awful lot of liberals and people on the left who were willing to also, but Arlen Specter, for example, the same right-wing senator who came up with the magic bullet theory during that church committee, I have a lot of clips of him actually saying some very bizarre things, really acquiescing to this idea that we need to vaccinate every American immediately for smallpox, even though there wasn't even at the beginning intelligence being leaked out saying that there was the possibility of this happening. It was completely based on an imaginary scenario at the same time the anthrax attacks were really happening. So while this real bioterrorist attack was really happening with weaponized anthrax, with letters going through the mail, this is when seemingly the Bush administration and the health departments in the federal government decided to start a national conversation about rolling out a smallpox vaccination program. And I think just in lieu of what I was saying of the COVID-19 pandemic, this might be the last time in history that we can go back to where it seemed like there was a really strong push to roll out a mandatory vaccine, a vaccine mandate of some kind. But what makes this different from COVID-19 is that this was based on a virus that could kill 30% of the people infected. And COVID-19 is far less dangerous than that. But then the flip side is that there is a COVID-19 pandemic. It's a real virus. It's very infectious. It's really happening. But back then in 2001, October 2001, when this conversation really went into high gear, there was no hint of even a smallpox pandemic happening. There was no reason to think this would happen. Yet this was being treated as if it was such a real threat that we might as well just inoculate the public. And this involves characters like Paul Wolfowitz, John Ashcroft, Dick Cheney, Tommy Thompson, Bill Clinton, Dr. Anthony Fauci, and a bunch of other people, Judith Miller. I mean, I'm going to go through a lot of different people who are a part of this. And But first, I need to give you some historical context on smallpox because I didn't just want to jump into this research starting with, you know, the 1990s. I needed to understand a little better what smallpox was, you know, how long it's been around, and just the history of smallpox vaccination in general. And I learned a lot of really surprising things when I went through this. So if you want to just fast forward to my Bush era, post 9-11 analysis of this actual smallpox rollout, the smallpox vaccine rollout program, then fast forward about 33 minutes from now. I'm going to start this episode by going into the history of smallpox and smallpox pandemics and just the history of the smallpox vaccine in general. So what is the history of smallpox and smallpox vaccination? Well, I wrongly thought, I guess, that there had been like maybe one major, what you would call a smallpox pandemic worldwide that had killed like the most people. But what you find is when you go back in history, there's been what could be honestly described as multiple pandemics that have happened seemingly all throughout history, but we only really can go back as far as the 3rd century BC to find any actual verifiable evidence of smallpox. So how many waves of smallpox and how many people have died throughout history? It's relatively incalculable, and I think people can only really make a rough guess as to when smallpox 
was identified historically, like without evidence, like people describing it. I don't know if it's DNA evidence or just like forensic evidence from mummies from the third century BC. Some people had died from smallpox who were later mummified. Now from Wikipedia, I don't know if this, these are fully accurate, but I'll read them anyways. In the 1700s in Europe, um, estimates say that about 400,000 people died from smallpox every year and that one-third of all the cases of blindness were due to smallpox infection by people who survived. And this is a pretty crazy little series of statistics. It said that smallpox is estimated to have killed up to 300 million people in the 20th century and around 500 million people in the last 100 years of its existence. Holy shit. As recently as 1967, 15 million cases occurred a year. Wow. Now, the survivability rate of smallpox hasn't seemed to have changed very much throughout history, maybe ever so slightly. But the CDC and like health organizations will still say that it has about a 30% mortality rate. So 30% of the people who get infected with smallpox die horribly. They die in a very painful and horrible way, essentially from most of them from internal bleeding. Your body gets covered in these lesions. It's kind of like a really extreme form of chicken pox, and they turn pussy and burst open and bleed. And it's, it's a horrible disease, but it was extremely common. And for a long time, all throughout history, it was just common for someone you know to have died from smallpox. Now, what's the history of actual vaccines from smallpox? When did they figure out how to combat it using a technique like a vaccine? Well, it was started in the 16th century in China with a technique that was later called, much later, variolation. And this is actually not even one of the first uh, smallpox immunization things. It was one of the first immunization techniques ever recorded. Now, how did they figure this out? Well, it's unclear exactly how they figured this out, but there was some understanding that developed over time with diseases like smallpox, but it took a very long time, you know, as we can see here, till the 1500s for people in China to eventually experiment with basically infecting people, people who were not sick with smallpox, infecting people intentionally with a very low-grade version of smallpox that people usually survived from that was like a skin infection-only version of smallpox. Part of the reason certain people would die and certain people wouldn't from smallpox is because of the type of infection it would cause. Some people only went as far as getting the skin infection. And for the most part, those people would survive if you would only get it on the surface of your skin as a method of how you got infected. So what they did in China was they actually would find survivors of smallpox who still had remaining scabs or healed, mostly healed, but still scabby lesions from a smallpox skin infection with a scalpel or a sharp object, remove these scabs from those people. They would dehydrate them and grind them up into basically a powder, almost like a, a medicinal powder out of a dried smallpox scab. And what would they do with this powder? Well, they wouldn't have them drink it or they wouldn't inject it into someone. What they did is they actually would put it into a little tiny thimble type thing and they would have straw going into the nose of 
the person who was receiving the vaccine, well, it wasn't called the vaccine. This is a variolation. It's an immunization technique. And someone on the other end, the person administering this variolation, would be blowing on another straw from the other end and would create enough pressure, essentially, to blow the dried up, powdered scab into your nose. So imagine the same type of stuff you've seen of people in the Amazon jungle administering Yopo DMT to people, like shamans blowing this stuff up people's noses. The DMT powder, the bark powder that they mix together. An early version of encephalation, of like snorting drugs, essentially. Well, this is what this was, but it was made from infected scabs, dried up and ground into powder, and forced blown up the person's nose who was receiving this immunization. Now, part of the problem with this is it would actually, in some cases, spread smallpox more. Because you could give someone too strong of an infection. It was it was a little bit... Um, it sometimes acted as a double-edged sword. And people over time sort of realized this. And there's a lot of medical documentation actually about this. You can even go back into the 1700s and read about this. And the 1700s, the late 1700s, is when they actually started to develop what they called the first vaccine. Now, we have to kind of understand that on a basic level it does seem like medical science did not even understand or had no understanding of how this immunization technique worked at all that had been used now, fast forward to the 1700s, for over 200 years. And it had spread worldwide. This idea of taking a lower-grade infection, specifically of smallpox, and then purposely infecting someone else with that to make them immune to smallpox was something that was not even remotely understood in a medical science way until much later. Even people developing the original vaccines were making a lot of educated guesses and they did not necessarily know exactly for sure how this was working. But it was almost sort of like, whatever this was, it, it was seemingly working or was having some kind of effect. Even at least the variolation could have a negative effect in some instances, but it could also have a positive effect. It had an effect. So by 1775, during the Revolutionary War in the United States, uh, George Washington actually ordered the entire Continental Army, all the troops, he ordered all of them to be vaccinated against smallpox. But when I say vaccinated, I'm actually misspeaking. He didn't order them to get the vaccine. It's not out yet by 1775. He ordered them to get variolation which is basically being purposely infected to become immune to smallpox. It says on Wikipedia that by the end of the American Revolutionary War, variolation had gained widespread acceptance in the larger cities and towns of the United States. So it's unknown. I don't know if there are any actual stats out there showing how much of the Continental Army actually you know, followed these orders, how many of them ended up getting variolation. But George Washington actually ordered... This is what we know of was the first mandate in the United States for a smallpox or vaccination style law in the U.S. of its kind. It was the first law, to my knowledge, that was passed that was basically a mandate saying you must get immunized from a disease. So just so people understand how far back this goes in our history, and I'm not saying that at all to validate current COVID-19 vaccine mandates of any kind. I have huge issues with that. I'm just saying that this this goes back into our history. 
as a sort of part of who we are as a, as a country. You know, we talk about, quote unquote, freedom and liberty with the founding fathers, but here's George Washington ordering his troops to do something quite draconian. And I'm sure many of them actually died from this variolation of smallpox that they were ordered to get, especially like if it was a rushed, rolled out version of the vaccine. Later, U.S. presidents would also order Native Americans to get the vaccine, and there was sort of a forced, mandatory smallpox vaccination program done with them. And it was done in the similar way. It was variolation. It wasn't vaccination. And I can't vouch for this website, but according to historyofvaccines.org, and this is actually originally told to me by a Twitter follower of mine. Sorry that I, I can't remember who it was who said this to me, but an enslaved man who went by the name Onesimus, who somehow retained his African name, sounds like, after he was sold to a man named Cotton Mather, who History of Vaccines says was an influential minister in Boston. You might remember Mother from learning about the Salem witch trials. Mother had bought Onesimus in 1706 and came to converse with him and learn about Onesimus's past. When Mother asked Onesimus if he ever had smallpox back in Africa, Onesimus described the practice of variolation to prevent smallpox epidemics. Now, this is in 1721. An enslaved man actually explained the concept of variolation, which at this point was, I guess, what you could describe as folk medicine. It was medicine that seemed to work and have an effect, but was not understood. But this concept was, at this time, very much unknown to the West. I don't even think in Europe it was known about yet. People in the American colonies had no idea what this was. Now, by this time, variolation, as shown to this minister and how it later spread to the colonies, involved taking infectious material like pus from the blisters of smallpox patients. A healthy person then receives the material through a cut in the skin in a controlled manner and under the supervision of a physician. This was done so that the smallpox symptoms would be milder, but still confer some sort of immunity in the future. Of course, the procedure was not without risk. People still developed severe symptoms and even died from smallpox via variolation. But those who died were in much smaller proportion to those who acquired it naturally from another person. Well, this leaves out the other risk of variolation, which is that the reason people would die from this is because they were accidentally getting infected with variola major instead of variola minor. The goal, without these people even realizing what they were doing, was to only capture the strain of variola minor. But part of the reason this was also so risky and was a practice that was eventually stopped is because when you would accidentally infect someone with variola major, you would essentially be helping the spread of smallpox, like the severe form of it. And you would help be helping it spread infection of it. Even if people would get immune and survive, you would be also causing more damage. So it was a double-edged sword of a technique to use. Cotton Mother recorded in his own diary after doing some research the new method used by Africans and I don't even know how to pronounce that word. I'll just say Asians. He actually says a word that to my modern ears sounds racist and weird. I believe it's pronounced Asiatics. Continuing. To prevent and abate the dangers of the smallpox and infallibly to save the lives of those that have it wisely managed upon them. 
Cotton Mather actually tried to push this idea and he really came out strongly advocating for variolation in the colonies. It had a huge pushback up until the Boston outbreak of smallpox, where apparently over 50%, around 11,000 people in Boston in 1721 were infected with smallpox. It says at the end of the epidemic, 14% of the population of Boston was dead. They actually were able to conduct some statistics after this outbreak of smallpox in Boston. And afterwards, what they found was that people who acquired the disease naturally were six times more likely to die from smallpox than those who acquired it via variolation. So it seems like at this point, just mathematically, they were trying to you know shift the discussion to, no, look, here's evidence that even though there's a material risk here, it's still less risky than just exposing yourself to smallpox normally. During the French and Indian War is when they say that the French and the British gave Native Americans smallpox-infected blankets on purpose to spread the smallpox pandemic among the Native Americans that they wanted to essentially defeat. Now, I think that that actually seems to be out there to some degree to take away from the fact that America, I'm sure, did this too. And I don't know, it's just interesting to me that it's all about how these European countries did this to the Native Americans and we didn't. I used to hear it the other way around, that America, that basically colonialists, people who wanted to get Native Americans out of there or have them slowly die out, were giving Native Americans blankets on purpose. Even some settlers were doing this with smallpox infected blankets. But without getting ahead of myself or getting ahead of the story that I'm trying to tell, let me just say that U.S. AMRID, Fort Detrick, the Biological Weapons Laboratory, produced a video in 1999 where they actually have a section about smallpox, specifically about bioterrorism. They introduced the segment by saying that the British giving smallpox-infected blankets to the Native Americans was one of the first uses ever of bioweapons. But it's also interesting because it doesn't implicate the U.S. and basically what is a U.S. government-sponsored video. Before the discovery of the smallpox vaccine, smallpox was in fact used as a weapon. One of the best documented examples of this occurred during the French and Indian War. The British had been defeated in their attempt to conquer Fort Carrion on Lake Champlain, so Sir Geoffrey Amherst, commander of the British forces, met with Indians who were sympathetic to the French. Under the pretense of friendship, he deliberately offered them blankets previously used by smallpox victims. The Indians, who lacked immunity to smallpox, suffered a devastating outbreak of the disease. The English were then able to successfully attack the fort, which, by the way, was renamed Fort Ticonderoga. Military forces have also been devastated by endemic smallpox. During the siege of Quebec, George Washington's troops suffered massive losses from smallpox. He subsequently required all new recruits to be inoculated against the virus. Now, what happened was, in the late 1700s, the first smallpox vaccine is actually given, administered to a human. This guy's name was John Clinch, and he apparently survived and nothing happened to him, and it apparently worked. Uh, they sort of used it as a, he was a human guinea pig. They published the evidence. And later that year, the man, Edward Jenner, who was actually the guy who came up with this vaccine, he published a paper claiming that it was safer than variolation 
and that his vaccine could be maintained by arm-to-arm transfer. Well, what did he actually do? Well, for some reason in the late 1760s, a few scientists, a man named John Fuster, Peter Pletz, Edward Jenner, who was the guy who would end up publishing this, and a guy named Benjamin Jesty, were all experimenting with this idea that using aspects of cowpox, which was an already existing animal infection, they could somehow protect people against smallpox. Now, I just met someone who was really knowledgeable when I was uh, going on to their podcast to discuss anthrax. I mentioned them at the beginning. He co-hosts the Gorilla History Podcast. His name is Henry Hakamaki, and I actually don't know what his background is. He's, he did mention it on the podcast that I guessed it on. So sorry, Henry, if you're listening, and I've forgotten what your actual background is, but um, I just wanted people to hear what you had to say about this when I asked Because basically what I was asking Henry was, what are the actual material differences between variolation and vaccination? What are the technical material differences? His response was, materially, it's not much different. Variolation is when actual smallpox virus is used, but is attempted to be attenuated and only given via the skin. Then he goes into the two different variations of smallpox, variola major, which kills 30% of the people who get it, and variola minor, which kills 1% of the people who get it. The goal was to hope you were variolating people with attenuated variola minor, but still this led to quite a few accidental deaths and quite a bit of unintended transmission of the virus when the variolated person would spread it. Meanwhile, using cowpox and later vaccinia virus, which is related to but distinct from cowpox, and is what our current vaccines use, reduces the likelihood of death tremendously. Rates were one in a million with the smallpox vaccine we were using during eradication, and transmission was negligible. Frankly speaking, the difference is simply the virus that's used. Sure, variolation tries to attenuate the smallpox virus, whereas vaccinia is given pretty much unattenuated because it doesn't generally make people sick, but functionally, the process is the same. So that's sort of interesting because, you know, I had already sort of understood on a basic level that the way vaccines worked was that they used a some kind of form of some kind of live virus to basically activate your immune system into immunizing yourself from the real virus that you were trying to prevent. So I asked him, is that where the name vaccine comes from? Since they're using what he says is a disease called vaccinia in the newest versions of the vaccine. And he says, believe it or not, the name worked the other way around. Edward Jenner called cowpox variola vaccinia, which is Latin for smallpox of the cow. The vaccinia part, referring to cows in reality, is what gave its name to the process of vaccination. Then for the next 140 years or so, people thought they kept giving cowpox to people as the vaccine. However, at some point, and no one really knows when, the virus that was being used as the vaccine was no longer cowpox. It was, in fact, another virus, which are clinically indistinguishable from one another. Vaccinia prefers horses to cows, though. This was named vaccinia because it was being used as the smallpox vaccine. The guess is that at some point, Someone mistook a vaccinia case for a cowpox case and used that virus for their stocks. And over time, cowpox stocks were replaced with vaccinia. 
And then I asked him, well, if people didn't even understand back then what exactly they were doing when they were variolating people, other than they knew they were giving people some form of immunity, how did they distinguish between the minor and major forms of smallpox so that they only killed 1% of the people they gave it to instead of 30%? And he said, with regards to telling apart major and minor, keeping in mind this was before genetic sequencing capabilities or even electron microscopy when the variolation was taking place. It was mostly done based on symptoms. Variola minor generally caused less severe disease with less pustules and a lower fever. If several people in a chain of transmission all looked like they had variola minor, they just kind of guessed that's what they had. The backup to this educated guess is that they would dry the pustule scabs to try to attenuate the virus at least a bit, which would have some effect whether it was variola major or minor. But regardless, accidental death was still a definite thing. And there were many outbreaks of mostly variola minor caused by variolation. Fascinating. So this is uh, Henry Hekamaki's answer when I asked him about this after appearing on Our Hidden History, his podcast. So definitely check out that podcast, but that's pretty fascinating um, that they named the actual disease that they used to vaccinate smallpox after the name vaccine. So this disease, vaccinia, that's used instead of cowpox for vaccines against smallpox is actually based on the word vaccine. Very strange. Um, very convoluted, too, but I hope people got something out of that and understood that. Now, this really quickly started to just take over this idea of variolation. Uh, the smallpox vaccine started to be widely used. And Russia actually made variolation illegal in 1805 because it also contributed to the spread of smallpox and other diseases. Governments sort of got involved making some of this mandatory and requiring large parts of the public to take the vaccine. In the late 1800s, a type of smallpox vaccine called calf lymph was marketed and was starting to be widely distributed. It started in Italy at first, and I guess this eliminated the need for arm-to-arm -arm vaccination, and this was done directly with a syringe injecting this vaccine into someone's arm, and that's all they needed to do. This type of smallpox vaccine, the calf lymph method, became the standard method of vaccine by 1900. So by 1900, you already had smallpox outbreaks you know, being combated with this vaccine that was being distributed pretty much in most of the countries on the planet. And this already had a name, calf lymph. And I don't really know how many different brands there were of this or who was actually selling this at the time. But it was a worldwide phenomenon, like all countries were making their own version of the vaccine, essentially, it seems like. Because I think it was wide, It was kind of like open source from the very beginning. It wasn't something that was, you know, mysterious on exactly, it wasn't like a copyrighted or patented formula. This is before that era. But before calf lymph became the number one and accepted method of doing vaccination, instead of arm-to-arm -arm transfer, in the early 1800s, in 1809, were the first time laws were actually passed that required people in the United States to get smallpox vaccines. And in Europe, some of the laws were actually even more intense than they were ever in the United States, because in the United States, for the most part, they were left up to the states. Now, in England, they passed what they called the Compulsory Infant Vaccination Law in 1853, which required infants to get the smallpox vaccine. 
And by 1871, parents in England could be fined for non-compliance and actually imprisoned for not paying those fines. Now, there was so much intense opposition to this that by 1898 in England, they actually had to pass something and add it to the already existing Vaccination Act called a Conscious Clause. And this was sort of like if you oppose the vaccine out of your personal belief against vaccines, it was sort of like an early version of a vaccine protester. Then you had to get it signed by two magistrates in front of a witness. And if you were able to get a certificate saying this, you were exempt from the law. And it was basically an impossible thing to do. But this was one method which they allowed people an out from having to take the smallpox vaccine or having their infants specifically have to take it. The first state in the United States to impose vaccination mandates of smallpox was Massachusetts in 1809. And it sort of ebbed and flowed throughout time. Various states would basically require it and then repeal it. By 1930, Arizona, Utah, North Dakota, and Minnesota basically prohibited any form of compulsory vaccination. And it says 35 states allowed regulation by local authorities or had no legislation affecting vaccination. While in 10 states, including Washington, D.C. and Massachusetts, infant vaccination from smallpox was compulsory. Compulsory infant vaccination was regulated by only allowing access to school for those who had been vaccinated. Those seeking to enforce compulsory vaccination argued that the public school could overrode personal freedom. A view supported by the U.S. Supreme Court in Jacobson versus Massachusetts in 1905. Now, this is all from Wikipedia, and it obviously seems a little slanted, to say the least. But it is interesting that this is how big of a deal smallpox vaccination was. Now, in the late 1800s, a new vaccine was starting to be used, but apparently it has uh, quite serious side effects. It has very adverse side effects in about 1% to 2% of the cases, sometimes death. It was a 95% effective vaccine, and it was a freeze-dried live virus smallpox vaccine that was actually used from the original calf lymph style of vaccine. American Home Products, which, which is now considered one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the United States, is what you would call a conglomerate. It's an umbrella that owns companies like Black Flag, Easy Off Oven Cleaner, Woolite, the food company Chef Boyardee, and it also owns quite a few drugs. American Home Products actually manufactured and sold this. So this was technically probably one of the first profited off of vaccines in history was the Drivax vaccine put out by American Home Products. And this would become the most commonly given out vaccine specifically by this company and pretty much only this company until the 1960s. So one would assume that this company got enormous government subsidies at the very least to produce this much Drivax smallpox vaccine for the public. Now, during World War I, getting vaccinated for smallpox was mandatory. And before the infamy of the Tuskegee Airmen in World War II, a man named John T. Wright, an African-American medical school graduate who entered World War I, was the one who actually introduced the idea of mandatory vaccination for U.S. soldiers in World War I. Now, right after World War II, after the creation of the UN and you know, a lot of formative stuff that pretty much dictates a lot of things today, was the creation of the World Health Organization. 
which is sort of a child organization of the United Nations. And under the World Health Organization also got created something called the World Health Assembly. Now, by the 1950s, there started to be talk about creating a worldwide program to eradicate smallpox completely. Even the USSR was pushing for this. What the WHO was contending with at the time is in the 1950s, there were still 50 million cases of smallpox occurring every year. They would go out with these teams and they would just have to contend with basically local governments and locals and governments of those countries uh, not giving them any stats on smallpox and like hiding a lot of information from them. So initially their job was pretty difficult. And I'm making it sound like I feel sorry for these people who are just trying to do their job, trying to eradicate smallpox, but you know damn well, and I'm not going to go into this rabbit hole, but you know for sure that back in the 1940s and early 1950s that this body was probably fully in the pocket of the U.S. government. You know, even if the Soviet Union was supplying some of this, you know, they used this reasoning that they weren't getting the accurate smallpox stats that they needed to basically establish little pockets of intelligence networks in all these different countries to let them circumvent certain red tape to be able to do this. So, you know, to them, this was the ends justify the means. So there's definitely stuff that the World Health Organization did like this back as early as the 1950s. The overwhelming majority of the vaccines that were sent to the WHO to try to eradicate smallpox worldwide via vaccination were given by the Soviet Union and the United States. And for the most part, in the West, by the 1950s, and even really in Europe, there was very little concern at that point about smallpox. There were still smallpox outbreaks, like one that happened in Yugoslavia in 1972. But for the most part, it had been eradicated here. And so most of the smallpox vaccines at this point started to be produced in countries where there were still smallpox outbreaks, like countries in Africa, for example. And this is really fascinating. The last known case of a death from smallpox actually happened in the UK in 1978. And guess what? It was actually, there's no dispute about this, done via a smallpox culture being worked on in a lab. That smallpox was grown for the purposes of research at the University of Birmingham Medical School at some point in the 70s. And a medical photographer named Janet Parker apparently got infected with smallpox from the smallpox virus that they had grown in this lab and died on September 11th, 17, and died on September 11th, 1978. Now, it becomes murky after this about what happens to the rest of the remaining smallpox in the world. Because while smallpox isn't technically fully eradicated until 1980, which is what the CDC and the WHO claim, they declared it eradicated worldwide. I think they actually did it as early as 1979. But because this infection actually happened from a lab, it sort of opens up this possibility of, well, then we can't say it's really eradicated at all if it still like exists in a lab. Because can't if this is the last person to die from smallpox, then that could happen again very easily. So I think this idea of eradicating all the world's remaining supplies in any research facility at this point was decided or was starting to be decided on. And a lot of people thought that that was the best course forward, that for the safety of the world, we just need to like destroy this shit forever. 
any remaining grown virus in any lab anywhere in the world needs to be destroyed. Now, about 40 years later, over 40 years later, that still hasn't happened. So why was this debate happening? Or has this debate been happening for the last 40 years? Well, in some ways, yeah, it has, which is sort of surreal to think that 40 years ago, someone died from smallpox because of a lab-grown sample. And for the whole time, we've been not able to decide on getting rid of the world's known samples. These aren't even hidden or classified. The world's known still remaining samples of the smallpox virus, those ones still haven't been destroyed yet. And 40 years ago, they started the debate on, we need to destroy these, they're too dangerous to keep around. And for some reason, that still has not happened. So the last known case in history of smallpox it was in England from a photographer who was she got infected somehow in an unknown way from this culture that was grown in a lab. No one knows how it happened. And there has not been a known smallpox infection or sighting in the wilderness of any kind in over 40 years. All scientists agree with this. There is no knowledge whatsoever that there, it's still out there in the wild somehow. If it is, it's on some isolated island that no one's ever visited or left. Smallpox is also very infectious, if I didn't mention that already. But now we're going to get into this idea that smallpox could now be seen as terrorism, that somehow a so-called terrorist or madman or megalomaniacal insane person could release smallpox for no other reason than just to destroy the planet. A totally suicidal form of terrorism in a way, you wouldn't you know, I guess unless you already had the smallpox vaccine, most of the public wouldn't be prepared for it. But if smallpox was eradicated or it was announced that it was eradicated in 1979, how long did it take for this conversation of biological terrorism using smallpox? How long did it take that conversation to appear? Well, it took about 15 years for it to really start. Where did the smallpox as bioterrorism frame originate? Was it from the dark winter exercise? No. It seems like it was sort of a culmination of the 24-hour news cycle, sensationalist U.S. media, especially on TV, really ramping up in the 90s, mixed with this sort of pop culture fixation and obsession with things like Hot Zone, the book, or what was later turned into or adapted, kind of adapted into a movie called Outbreak was Dustin Hoffman. There's also movies like 12 Monkeys. There was also another aspect to this in the mid-90s. Governments, especially the U.S. and U.K. government, being extremely plugged into these catastrophically thinking experts, or in the case of the U.S. government, being plugged into these catastrophically thinking think tanks, these think tank apparatuses like Brookings, RAND, the American Enterprise Institute, CSIS, Council on Foreign Relations. All of these experts, these bioterror experts, or these so-called catastrophic thinkers who work for these think tanks, they're just spinning horrific, completely unrealistic scenarios as some kind of justification, basically, for aspects of the U.S. government to grab more power or to push for some kind of agenda that will somehow enrich them and their friends. Because in the mid-1990s, there was hardly any reason to think that this would happen. I mean, this is way before 9-11. 
it was just like in the pop culture. Of course, knowing this show, you know, I wouldn't just gloss over the think tank part and just name off a bunch of think tanks without getting a little deeper. Well, in March 1993, you have what seems to be an extremely influential paper that comes out on the think tank circuit that to this day is actually paywalled. It was published by CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a think tank that was founded over 50 years ago. And it's called Biological Weapons, Weapons of the Future. Most of the people listed in this still paywalled, very influential paper by CSIS are very obscure. I've never heard of most of them, personally. But it's edited by a guy named Brad Roberts, who seems to keep coming up and is continuously referenced, even during the Bush era, about this idea of smallpox biological terrorism. It has several chapters, each written by different contributors. Chapter 1, A Review of U.S. Biological Warfare Policies, by Tom Daschiel. Chapter 2, Biological Weapons, The British View, by Graham S. Pearson. Chapter 3, The Proliferation of Biological Weapons, by W. Seth Karras. Chapter 4, The Biotechnology Revolution and Its Potential Military Implications, by Victor A. Utkoff. Chapter 5, Coping with Biological Terrorism, by Robert H. Kupperman and David M. Smith. Chapter 6, Arms Control Programs and Biological Weapons, by Michael Moody. Chapter 7, The U.S. Biological Defense Research Program, by David L. Huxle. And Chapter 8, and Chapter 8 is actually by far the longest one, New Challenges and New Policy Priorities for the 1990s, by Brad Roberts. Chapter 8 takes up what appears to be about 50% of the content of the whole book. It starts on page 67 and concludes on page 93. All the other chapters in this book by other contributors are rather short. They're about 10 pages at most. But this guy, Brad Roberts, seems to have been really ahead of the curve. And there's some really specific wording in what he's laying out in his chapter that seems to have been really formative in basically the next few decades. And I'll just read you one passage. And I should say that while he's not mentioning smallpox and anthrax very much at all, specifically, he's talking around them because he is talking about this concept of a mass biological weapons retaliatory attack of some kind. He also goes into this idea how there is a fine line between offense and defense when it comes to R&D for biological war. So like trying to defend yourself in a biological war, he's arguing that there's such a fine line between it that you know people who are arguing that we shouldn't do R&D are ridiculous because we need an extremely strong R&D program. But here's a passage that I think is really interesting. The biological weapon terrorism challenge also raises the question of whether biological weapon defenses have been too narrowly confined to specifically battlefield concerns, and whether it might not be prudent to expand protection to the civilian population more generally. A program of this scale is not warranted by the current biological threat, and in any case would not be politically sustainable in an era defined by the post-Cold War peace, absent a cataclysmic event to reshape perceptions. Holy shit. 
But given the proliferation and terrorism factors discussed above, the United States would be well advised to rethink its degree of preparation for this contingency. And it would be useful to investigate whether the Centers for Disease Control would be capable of responding to the simultaneous outbreak of disease in multiple cities, or what would be required to give it such a backup capability. Some type of emergency preparedness to respond to and investigate biological weapon terrorist threats akin to those created long ago in the nuclear domain and more recently in the chemical area would be prudent. Holy shit. There's a lot of stuff in here that keeps boomeranging back to Iraq. It talks about the former Soviet Union, but it seems to always keep going back to Iraq. So there's this theme throughout the paper that Iraq is the country to keep keeping a close eye on, specifically. Now, Brad Roberts also has written papers throughout the 1980s and even earlier for CSIS. He seemed to have a focus on chemical weapons, basically how the U.S. could skirt around various aspects of the chemical weapons convention. Just like in this paper, he's talking about ways that the U.S. can get around the biological weapons convention. He wrote a paper in 1987 for CSIS called Chemical Warfare Policy Beyond the Binary Production Decision. CSIS also has famous former government people and neoconservatives. For example, Michael Ledeen, Project for the New American Century Neocon, is associated with CSIS. Henry Kissinger was a chairman at some point for CSIS. Former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak was a member of the CSIS. From Dr. Brad Roberts' bio, I think it's actually maybe from his own website, he's the director of Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory Center for Global Security Research. And keep in mind, Lawrence Livermore Lab is the place that Abby and I visited for the pilot episode of Breaking the Set, which is actually owned by Battelle. It's a privatized government lab. Previously, he served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear and Missile Defense Policy. From 1995 to 2009, Dr. Roberts was a member of the research staff at the Institute for Defense Analysis in Alexandria, Virginia, and an adjunct professor at George Washington University. A member of the Council on Foreign Relations, Roberts has a bachelor's degree in international studies from Stanford University and a PhD in international relations. Now, if you go, now we've released a new cache of files, or I shouldn't say we, I should say I have released a new cache of files called the smallpox cache to go along with this episode. And if you actually go in the smallpox cache folder called Think Tank and Official U.S. Government Documents, you can find several papers, several think tank papers in the 1990s and actual U.S. government papers, U.S. military papers that continuously cite Brad Roberts that talk about how smallpox is one of the most deadly threats that we are potentially facing in biological warfare. I wasn't actually able to get the full paper of this because I don't have academic access and wink, wink, nod, nod to anyone out there who's listening who wants to throw me a login to something so I can grab academic papers whenever I want. Brad Roberts wrote a really gross paper, actually, in 1993 for the Washington Quarterly, which is actually a publication of CSIS. And the title of this is called Think Tanks in a New World. And this extremely gross paper, as I appropriately called it, is really gross because it's basically just laying out in the open 
exactly how the neocons thought in the 90s, that this was their chance to seize on this void of world peace, the post-Soviet Union. People thought things were okay, uh, you know, were celebrating basically this chance for world peace. And then the neocons were like, well, this is now our time. This is now our baby. We can steer the vision of the future. Think tanks in a new world, this paper is basically about how Brad Roberts believes that think tanks like the CSIS will now steer the vision of the future, the vision of America's future. And I'll put a link to this paper in the notes of the podcast. In fall 1994, Brad Roberts put out a paper that's also in the smallpox cash folder called Controlling the Proliferation of Biological Weapons. Brad Roberts also, at this point in the mid-1990s, was working for the Institute for Defense Analysis, which got regularly commissioned by various U.S. government agencies to do what they called threat assessment. And in a paper he wrote called Asymmetric Conflict 2010, this is projecting many, many years in the future, he asked four questions. One of the questions is, how will the challenge of the asymmetric conflict have evolved over the two-decade period from the wake-up call of the Persian Gulf War to 2010? And question number four, how might an adversary's use of a contagious disease such as smallpox affect the ability of U.S. forces to sustain the war fight? Now, I said earlier that it was a combination of multiple things happening in the early to mid-90s that eventually led to this smallpox bioterrorism snowball. It wasn't just these think tanks and neocons that were already really plugged into basically the U.S. government, but it was also these pop culture authors. The guy who wrote Hot Zone was named Richard Preston, and this was sort of a breakthrough hit. It kind of was one of the first books actually in pop culture that I can think of that was based on a story that was supposed to be a true story that read like some kind of thriller novel. And because it was about this Ebola outbreak, this real Ebola outbreak that barely anyone had really heard about, it became really popular and really, really influential. And this book, Hot Zone, was adapted or quasi-adapted into the movie Outbreak with Dustin Hoffman. That is to take you through this timeline a little bit. An article comes out in the Atlanta Journal. This might be the first mention or one of the first mentions in the press about the U.S. government theorizing or fucking around with a smallpox terrorist scenario. This article comes out on May 19, 1995. I'm sure this is reported elsewhere, but this is the first one I can find online. It's from a guy named Mike Toner writing for the Atlanta Journal. He talks about how the WHO wants all remaining stocks of the smallpox virus to be destroyed by June 30th. This was decided by a scientific panel at the WHO. And it states that the only two known samples of smallpox are stored at the CDC headquarters in Atlanta and at a Russian laboratory in Siberia. And then they have a little timeline here that says that they wanted these stockpiles to be destroyed originally by December 31st, 1993. And in December 1993, the destruction was actually postponed by a group of scientists who lobbied the WHO saying they wanted to map the genetic structure of it, and they got permission to. 
Now, on September 1994, the same WHO committee that had agreed to delay the destruction now says they want it destroyed by June 30th, 1995. Now, this is where things get a little odd and murky because it does seem like the very first real insert into here, specifically about smallpox being a weapon in bioterror, comes from British intelligence. Now, I've tried to find exactly what this means or where this comes from, but I can't. The article really doesn't explain it, but this timeline here that they're posting claims that British intelligence sources circulate new information about possible use of smallpox as a terrorist weapon. And this is saying this in this timeline that happened in October 1994, that British intelligence circulated new information. I don't know if it was in the form of a report or a leak or what. By January 1995, the WHO is prepared again to destroy the smallpox virus stockpiles in Russia and at the CDC headquarters in the U.S. And for some reason, the United Kingdom demands that they don't. And the WHO board postpones their vote again. Why the U.K. was so fixated on this, I guess it's because of this terror threat. That's unclear. But for some reason, they ceded to the U.K.'s demand to not destroy it. Now it seems like this opens the door in April 1995, according to this timeline, where it says that now the CDC and U.S. public health officials are entertaining this idea of expanded research on smallpox with U.S. AMRID, the place that apparently anthrax later leaked from in the 2001 anthrax attacks of all places. Now, the last event on this timeline is it said that Australia was the only country to try to enforce a vote, but was outnumbered at the last WHO assembly meeting on May 1st, 1995. So Australia was like, hey guys, we need to destroy this smallpox. It's fucking dangerous. And all the other countries refuse. But these research proposals, according to this article, if you actually read the article, it says in this article that U.S. officials say there is no evidence that any virus samples have been diverted for illicit use, but they say it would be difficult to verify that all of them are in hand. WHO plans to send two representatives to visit the laboratory in Siberia this month to look over the facilities. U.S. intelligence services raised their own concerns about smallpox as a weapon of terror last December. At the request of the National Security Council, defense and health agencies have since held several meetings to consider potential threats and medical ways to counter it. Although much of the information presented is classified, even staunch advocates of destroying the virus appear to be swayed by security concerns. Now, Donald A. Henderson, who I played you a clip earlier of, who takes credit for eradicating smallpox, and this is when they quote Donald A. Henderson, I think it is pretty unanimous at this point that we are going to have a research program. The only question is what kind of program. I mean, that's a, like, kind of an ominous way to end the article. But in general, the tone of this article is that these CDC officials and the U.S. officials, including people at U.S. AMRID, are basically saying that, yeah, in the end, the goal is to eradicate this. We're only studying the DNA of it so that we can just make it easier to eradicate in the end. So eventually we will just like fully eradicate, like even get rid of our stocks. But right now we have to have them to be able to fuck around with them. You know what I mean? And so that's, that's kind of their messaging. One of my favorite books about the 2001 anthrax attacks is a relatively obscure book called Anthrax, Bioterror as Fact and Fantasy by a German author named Philip Saracen. It's translated into English, but the translation is very good. It doesn't feel like it's translated. 
And I've always wanted to read parts from this book to you guys on Media Roots, but I really haven't found a good excuse to do that until now. Although I did copy the concept that Phyllis Serapson came up with in this book, which is this analysis that he comes up with in the first, somewhere in the first hundred pages of the book, he goes through the entire propaganda campaign for the anthrax attacks and sort of how WMD, Weapons of Mass Destruction, became a metonym. That's his word, a metonym for anthrax. And so I've sort of adopted that terminology because I think it's a really succinct way of describing what happened. Or even though people remember nukes and nerve gas and sarin and all these other things, that it really was originally used as a metonym for anthrax, code for anthrax. But during the Clinton era is when this idea of terrorism became, you know, sort of something that was entering into pop culture. And especially after the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center, it sort of opened the door for this to become like a pop culture, you know, kind of subject, this idea of terrorists, but not specifically Middle Eastern terrorists yet. That sort of developed more in the late 1990s with, you know, the Bin Laden fears and all that stuff. But 1993 kind of opened the door for Richard Preston, apparently, the author of the award-winning, extremely best-selling book, Hot Zone. And Richard Preston is an American author, by the way. And he got a doctorate from Princeton. So he's a very well-educated dude. He comes out with this book that, from all accounts, seems to be one of Bill Clinton's primary policy influences. Uh, Bill Clinton got obsessed with this idea of catastrophic terrorism, bioterrorism, nerve gas terrorism. And when Richard Preston releases his basically his follow-up book to Hot Zone in 1998, this book becomes something that Bill Clinton starts circulating around to his people and experts and asking them basically to generate estimates and to look into aspects of this book. Well, what was this book? Well, unlike Hot Zone Cobra event, the Cobra event, was a book about a hybridized virus. As a starter, Philip Saracen says, the common cold virus, to speed transmission of the virus from the mucous membranes of the nose to the brain, next the gene for smallpox. The hybrid virus which penetrates the brain in this imaginary thriller by way of the neural pathways ultimately unleashes brain pox as victims begin to devour themselves. The auto-cannibalism that is manifest in extraordinarily aggressive behavior towards others turns victims into wild beasts for the final hours of their lives. Now, what's interesting about this, the way that Philip Saracen describes this book, well, they don't know originally how the brain pox spreads, but they find out later in this investigation in this imaginary book that it was done by two terrorists by unleashing brain pox bombs with a genetically engineered designer bug. And the whole framing of Preston's book is that biowarfare in the future, and that even right now, is being done with designer viruses that are modifications of existing viruses and not just regular viruses. But what's interesting here is that Preston actually suggests that brain pox is almost like a zombie virus, that it creates right before these people die is sort of almost like a zombie-like plague where people act like zombies and cannibalize. So what's fascinating to me about this is it seems as if this might be the first a designer virus creates a zombie pandemic story 
and the first major influential bioterrorism story combined in one sort of novel. So like things like 28 Days Later might have been inspired indirectly by this. So that's sort of weird because there's always, I think, been, you know, kind of a, at least in the Bush era, post-Bush era, zombie movies and zombie apocalypse stuff sort of takes on this sort of neocon sort of survivalist Machiavellian vibe. And I don't know, I mean, you know, like sort of the managerial elites having to save the world, like in World War Z or something like that, or the scientists or whatever. I mean, I don't know. I don't even know where I'm going with that. But anyways, in this book, Philip Saracen says that Richard Preston is a touch wary of plainly implicating Iraq as the villain behind this brain pox attack. And Preston peoples his story with craven Swiss racketeers in cahoots with smart young geneticists. But the novel's guiding impulse is the suggestion of a lethal Russia-Iraq connection. An interviewer of Richard Preston seems to grasp the message when he asked Preston, I've been thinking that we're reaching the point where we can generate a doomsday machine and one that's low-tech and easily accessible. Mesopotamia, for example, could whoop up some high infectious bugs, and hold its neighbors or the world hostage. I mean, if I were a small fanatical country with a last-ditch agenda, this is the way I would go. Preston doesn't contradict him. On the contrary, yes, exactly. Meaning Iraq, a small fanatical country capable of taking the world hostage with inexpensively assembled bioweapons. And Philip Saracen says that this book that was just what seemed like an airport thriller novel at the time makes your jaw drop. And the years since it was written, reality appears to have been more than caught up with fiction. And since the fall of Baghdad in April 2003, reality has turned back into fiction. Even the novel itself, the plot, sparked fear of war. This is from the novel. The possibility that the deaths in New York were a terrorist event being sponsored by Iraq weighed on Hopkins. He discussed it by phone with Frank Masaccio, the FBI officer coordinating the investigation. Masaccio was very disturbed by this, if this is terrorism sponsored by a foreign government. Well, if this is terrorism sponsored by a foreign government, Will, this could start a war. I know, Frank Hopkins said. A statement at the end of the novel cites the existence of evidence of a continuing biological weapons program in Iraq, a program that had apparently moved into the genetic engineering of viruses. And Saracen goes on to say that Preston's biological weapons description seemed totally convincing today. He uses a lot of very complicated and cutting-edge science jargon, kind of like Michael Crichton does. And he says that he constructs his novel in such a way that the reader has no way of distinguishing between genuine biological possibilities and pure fiction. He systematically blurs this border. And that's not all. The portrayal of genetic engineering in the Cobra event bears only superficial resemblance to good popular science and is actually an insidious form of disinformation. He says, Preston's superbug is not all that plausible in a genetic engineering sense. In an article published in the New York Times on November 7, 1997, right after the publishing of Preston's new book, Preston maintained that, based on the reports I've heard from members of the UN inspection teams, top officials and scientists, as well as photographs and UN documents, Iraq possessed genetically modified cultures of anthrax, plague, Ebola, botulin toxin, and smallpox. Intelligence experts believe, Preston continued, that even deadlier versions of these genetically modified organisms were circulating on the international black market. 
What would happen if they were used against defenseless American cities? The result would be terror in slow motion, an unrolling horror with a death toll equivalent to dozens of Oklahoma City bombings day after day. Now, whether this was because of Bill Clinton's obsession with the book, I haven't said much about that yet, or not, but by the time that Judith Miller interviews Bill Clinton, she interviews Bill Clinton with William Broad for the New York Times in January 1999, he got onto this topic of what books he's reading about terrorism. He says, I've had all kinds of, I also find that reading novels, futuristic novels, sometimes people with an imagination are not wrong, Clinton says. And Richard Clark, who was there, recalls with astonishment his eclectic choices and his habit of devouring a book a night since the 1995 Sarin subway gas attack in Tokyo. Clark mentions, for example, that Clinton loved the book Rainbow Six by Tom Clancy. This book came out in 1998, around the same time of Preston's, and this book written by Tom Clancy is about how the owners and managers of a large American pharmaceutical company are preparing to disseminate a secret hybrid virus to free the planet of the parasite Homo sapiens. Clancy endeavors to portray the ideology of the characters as a copy of the Soviet totalitarianism and even includes an Iranian bioweapons attack that killed 5,000 people in the United States. But the plot, although exciting, is politically very abstruse and far from any reality. Well, I should step in and say that Steve Pachenik, guy who was part of the State Department, basically was the Alex Jones whisperer, was also the Tom Clancy whisperer around the same time. Philip Saracen goes on to say that no wonder that Clinton was far more impressed with another, somewhat earlier book. Responding to a leading question from the New York Times' Judith Miller, he says, Richard Preston's novel about biological warfare, which is very much based on Hot Zone or Cobra event, which one impressed you? Miller says. The Cobra event, Clinton says. That's the one, says Miller. Clinton says, well, the Hot Zone was interesting to me because of that Ebola thing, because that was a fact book. But I thought the Cobra event was interesting, especially when he said what his sources were, which seemed fairly credible to me. Saracen says, It does seem a little peculiar that in dealings with his strategic question, both the president and speaker of the House, talking about Newt Gingrich, had to fall back on the research of a thriller author to obtain alleged real information, not to mention that the U.S. CIA and the FBI and the Pentagon preferred to confide their information to a novelist rather than to the president and to the commander-in-chief. But it is no secret that it happened that way. Since 1993, Clinton's own Secretary of the Navy, Richard Danzig, had been contemplating a possible bioweapons threat to the Americans' armed forces. Danzig was said to be sharply critical of the lack of coordination among the different, generally low-level experts in the various departments of the Pentagon and the intelligence agencies, but his criticisms were not well-received. Danzig the secretary of Bill Clinton's Navy, actually met Preston at a lunch in 1996. Fresh from his success with the hot zone, Preston was doing research for a new novel about an anthrax bioterror attack on New York, and Danzig soon began systematically putting him in contact with informants at the Pentagon and the FBI. It was an FBI source who argued Preston out of the too-real anthrax idea and recommended that he construct a fictional hybrid virus instead. With obvious success, so impressed was Clinton, not just with Preston's sources but also his fiction, that he appropriated the latter as his vision of the future. 
This vision was similar to the strategic threat scenarios of some of the Pentagon planners, which is to say that it convinced neither the largely skeptical military nor Clinton's advisors. The president, however, was aghast on reading the book. Petrified, as the New York Times reported, and as trumpeted on the book's back cover, Clinton promptly internalized Cobra Events plot. And this is from the same Judith Miller interview. Clinton says, It is a near certainty that at some time in the future there will be groups, probably a terrorist group, that attempts to bring to bear either the use of the threat of a chemical or biological weapon. I would say that it is very likely to happen sometime in the next few years. Later in the interview, the president specified, Let's suppose some terrorist hired a genius scientist in a laboratory to take basic anthrax and put some variant in it that would be resistant to all known anthrax antidotes. But who would do such a thing, Saracen says. Clinton continues, We know Osama bin Laden's network has made an effort to get chemical weapons. Miller says, Biological or just chemical? Clinton says, Well, we know they've made an effort to get chemical weapons. They may have made an effort to get biological weapons. We do not know that they have them. Now, apparently this actually led Clinton to initiate or to push from the White House end this idea that they needed to study the genetic sequencing of smallpox. Now, this was the late 90s when this idea of genetic engineering, genetic sequencing, the Human Genome Project, I don't even think the Genome Project was finished yet. So this idea of genetic DNA sequencing uh, was relatively new. And Clinton was like a big proponent of this technology. And he would, kind of like Al Gore would, he would really lean into this sort of like exciting new science that was coming out in the 90s and sort of use that as a vision of the future. And genetics was sort of one way Clinton would do that. So this was sort of like two pet projects of his, like this hobby of his to read these Tom Clancy novels, these like catastrophic terrorism novels mixed together with his already existing interest in pushing genetics and like human genome project and DNA research. Now, this part's not clear if Clinton actually brought this guy in or not. I, obviously, after Clinton read the Cobra event, he was so obsessed with this concept that he got briefed by a geneticist named Craig Venter about the possible relationship between genetic engineering and bioterrorism. Now, the discussion apparently included the smallpox virus, says Philip Saracen. Venter had actually been on the board of the Institute for Genomic Research and had worked on mapping the smallpox virus genome. So as I was saying in that timeline earlier, that's when they started mapping it, like in the mid-90s. So this is one of the guys who was responsible for being involved in that project. Now, Clinton just pontificates and goes off on this sort of egotistical pseudo-intellectual rant. He's like, we may have to depend upon the Genome Project, interestingly enough, because once the human genes' secrets are unlocked, if you and I think we've been infected, they could take a blood sample and da-da-da-da-da. They could use computer program. And let's say if we had a variant of anthrax, hybrid bioweapons, blah, blah. So he's basically just reciting pretty much every trope that was put into this book, The Cobra Event. Now, as I said, The Cobra Event seems like it actually did get, like, pumped full of like government sources it was it was basically like a government propaganda thriller novel one of the guys was the secretary of the navy who was trying to push this fantasy now philip saracen also goes into how richard preston just suddenly starts consulting a senate subcommittee about bioterrorism it's awfully strange that richard preston the author of this fictional book who has no expertise in this actually um, 
appeared before a subcommittee, and this is what he said. In April 1998, when Preston appeared before the Joint Senate Committee, he cited 100 to 400 strategic warheads on Soviet intercontinental missiles filled with smallpox and plague supposedly targeted to American cities. He continued, I have no idea where those bio warheads are now. Russian military people have never said these warheads were destroyed. And one could wonder if other countries such as Iran or Iraq have obtained examples of the bio-warheads for use as study models for their own missile programs. Warheads bearing, and this is Saracen's words, genetically engineered invisible killers, that is the suspicion on which the novel is based, and Preston could only reaffirm it to the Senate. Instead of proof, he served up an abbreviated lesson in popular science, in a manner One reserves for the slow-witted, he patiently explained that weapons-grade particles are so fine that they disperse easily in the air and can fly for miles. I'll give you a demonstration using harmless baby powder, he said. This illustrates what a bioweapon really looks like in the air. It disperses and becomes invisible and undetectable. Baby powder on Capitol Hill? The various powders in the anthrax letters following September 11th has a surprisingly ubiquitous precursor. Now, that's what Philip Saracen is commenting on, saying how odd that is that Preston is here saying that he's going to throw out baby powder in front of the Senate subcommittee to show them how dangerous a bioweapon could be because this is what it does in the air. Well, that's how Judith Miller would later describe the hoax anthrax letter from St. Petersburg. That's how people sort of describe the grade of the anthrax in the real Tom Daschle letter from New Jersey, that it was very, very fine powder. Now, according to Saracen, and I didn't even know this, it says that from the beginning of 1998, President Clinton addressed bioterrorism in every one of his speeches, calling it the drawback of globalization. What the hell? Wow, I didn't even know about this all. This is wild. And he says as early as January 1998, Clinton was demanding that his advisors and high-level Pentagon officials read the COBRA event. And in March 1998, the White House conducted a secret exercise that involved playing out a terrorist attack with hybrid smallpox virus. The White House presents Cobra Live. <laughs> wow, this is absolutely ridiculous. And it says later in April in the Truman Room, Clinton got together Defense Secretary William Cohen, Janet Reno, Health Secretary Donna Shalala, CIA Director Richard Tennant, NSA Director Sandy Berger, and a bunch of experts in biological weapon systems, including someone that, as I said before, has one of the better timelines in the Ameritax investigation, someone who I cited, Barbara Hatch Rosenberg. So this is that same wild card character I was telling you about before who was going after Hatfield. Uh, she's here advising Clinton on bioterrorism. Now, Clinton apparently was pushing Richard Preston's book, Cobra Event, at this meeting. And According to some insiders, some people in the room found the whole thing embarrassing, but they also knew that it was a unique opportunity. Apparently on May 22nd, 1998 is when Clinton submits his, quote, germ defense plan. And the focus of this plan was to stockpile vaccines and make defensive military measures. There was a major exercise conducted at the very end of Clinton's administration in May 2000, where it revolved around a lone perpetrator in his cellar cultivating anthrax bacteria 
that an extremist group then lets loose in Manhattan, killing 140,000 people within a week. This exercise called Operation Top Off, an imaginary anthrax attack that kills 140,000 people in New York, involved 20,000 high-ranking government officials from 35 agencies, enacting a combination of biological, chemical, and computer attacks on three American cities. In one of the simulated attacks, the focus was a single perpetrator introducing plague into the ventilation system of a public building. Now, the one that's the most interesting to me there, obviously, is the one about the guy in his basement making anthrax by himself, because that's, of course, later sort of the official story of what the FBI put out about the Amerithrax attacks. They claim Bruce Ivins was by himself without any of his other co-workers knowing making anthrax secretly in his off hours. But just going back a little bit over what I just said, what you have here happening is a classic neocon DC feedback loop. You have Brad Roberts seemingly being really ahead of the curve, even talking about cataclysmic events that might be needed to get the public to buy into a mass smallpox vaccination program, for example. Um, In 1993, you have this guy seeding all this stuff in the early 90s via CSIS and with these commissioned government reports through the Pentagon, essentially. And then you even have commanders of the Navy uh, seeding stuff through various reporters or even, in this case, authors like... Richard Preston, who wrote the Cobra event. And maybe uh, he got some of that stuff from Brad Roberts, because if you go into the smallpox cache, you're going to find a lot of interesting documents in a folder, think tank and official U.S. government documents. Specifically, you're going to find a really interesting document called Smallpox, a Primer, written by U.S. Air Force Counterproliferation Center Future Warfare Series, written by Lieutenant Colonel Brenda J. McElhinney, U.S. Air Force. And this paper cites Brad Roberts many times. It references his paper that he wrote in 1993 for CSIS. And several other things seem to reference him as well. In fact, almost any bioterrorism assessment you can find officially released by any U.S. government entity or any, like, even science research group that was commissioned by the U.S. government or working, you know, in leagues with some think tank apparatus would continually cite Brad Roberts. And then they were later leaked out by these government officials who absorbed things from think tanks back out to an author like Richard Preston, who basically just became a conduit for catastrophic thinking, neoconservative propaganda that was designed to shape public policy. Now, it's unknown exactly how many of these mock bioterrorist attack scenarios were conducted as like these drills involving lots of federal employees, but Judith Miller and William J. Broad actually have an article in the New York Times from April 26, 1998 called Exercise Finds U.S. Unable to Handle Germ War Threat. On a bright spring day last month, they're talking about another drill different from the ones that I told you about earlier. Forty officials from more than a dozen federal agencies met secretly near the White House to play out what would happen if terrorists attacked the United States with a devastating new type of germ weapon, government officials say. The results were not encouraging. Under the scenario, terrorists spread a virus along the Mexican-American border, primarily in California and the Southwest. 
After doctors diagnosed the epidemic as smallpox, the dreaded killer once thought to have been eradicated, vaccines were rushed in to immunize the population. But what appeared to have been smallpox turned out to be a hybrid, whose hidden side caused profuse bleeding and a high fever for which there was no cure. As the scenario unfolded, officials playing the role of state and local officials were quickly overwhelmed by a panicked population, thousands of whom were falling ill and dying, discovering huge gaps in logistics, legal authority, and medical care. They began quarreling among themselves and with Washington over how to stem the epidemic. In truth, no one was in charge. The outcomes of the exercise surprised some participants, but illustrated what others had long suspected. The United States, despite huge investments of time, money, and effort in recent years, is still unprepared to respond to biological terror weapons. The secret exercise, officials said, also underscored the need for a sweeping plan that President Clinton is expected to approve this week. The goal of the two new presidential decision directives is to enhance the country's ability to prevent chemical, biological, or cyber weapon attacks, and if deterrence fails, to respond more effectively to the mayhem. Mr. Clinton's interest, especially in germ warfare, has been deepened by books, Aide said. Mr. Clinton was so alarmed by one of them, a novel by Richard Preston titled The Cobra Event, that he instructed intelligence experts to evaluate its credibility. Administration officials said the president had become increasingly worried by the idea of germ-wielding terrorists who might cripple the nation by sowing deadly epidemics. Mr. Clinton's personal interest, officials said, has become a powerful force behind a series of secret federal meetings and directives meant to bolster the nation's anti-terrorism work. Judith Miller also mentions another exercise. She says, last month's secret exercise, known as a tabletop, the civilian version of a military war game, Judith Miller then continues to actually go into the actual exercise by saying, This was known as a tabletop, the civilian version of a military war game, used a genetically engineered virus, a mix of the smallpox and Marburg virus. And then it goes on to say that last Wednesday, senior officials told a joint Senate hearing, and I haven't been able to find this hearing, I've looked for it, but it says that senior Clinton officials told the Senate hearing that the administration might create a national stockpile of vaccines, antibiotics, and antidotes to save lives in the event of a chemical or biological attack by terrorists. I mean, it's crazy that every single speech that Clinton made towards the end of his presidency mentioned biological weapons. And this idea of stockpiling vaccines is clearly about smallpox. I mean, what a crazy thing to have gotten themselves into such a frenzy and 9-11 hadn't even happened yet. And there just must have been so much discussion behind the scenes and maybe even a mini gold rush for people trying to get a piece of this pie to get some of this funding that people just rushed to the gates to write these really, really in-depth papers. For example, one released in 1999 called Smallpox as a Biological Weapon. And the objective of the paper was to develop a consensus-based recommendation for measures to be taken by medical and public health professionals following the use of smallpox as a biological weapon against a civilian population. Now, they don't specifically say terrorism here, but that's the whole thing. You know, they're implying it. Terrorists are the ones who 
wage warfare on civilians. And it says the participants in this paper are a working group including 21 representatives from staff of major medical centers and research, government, military, public health, and emergency management and agencies. And the conclusions of this paper, which I'll just say because that's what's important, right? The conclusions were that they have specific recommendations made regarding smallpox vaccination, therapy, post-exposure isolation and infection control, home care, decontamination of the environment, and additional research needs. In the event of an actual release of smallpox and subsequent epidemic, early detection, isolation of infected individuals, surveillance of contacts, and a focused selective vaccination program will be the essential items of an effective control program. Now, the agencies that were actually in control of this paper hired this working group in September 1998, and these agencies were U.S. AMRID, the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, which is where the FBI says the anthrax and the anthrax mailings come from, but also the Department of Health and Human Services, the DHHS. And this had already gotten to the Hill and sort of infected the mindset on Capitol Hill. Because an article from the Associated Press from March 17, 1999, says biological threats worry senators by Laura Myers. Senators concerned that the nation isn't prepared for biological terrorism urged the government Tuesday to stockpile more anthrax and smallpox vaccines and to develop new ones. Senator Arlen Specter called on the Clinton administration to declassify a Pentagon list of some two dozen biological weapons in order to warn Americans, saying he would write a letter to Defense Secretary William Cohen asking him to do so. Senator Jay Rockefeller said the United States is way behind in our efforts in dealing with bioterrorism, calling the potential danger extremely real. It is as great a threat or a greater threat than the Soviet Union posed to us, Rockefeller declared. The Pentagon is inoculating all 2.4 million U.S. troops and reserves against anthrax. Smallpox is highly contagious. The disease was eradicated decades ago, but the former Soviet Union and other countries experimented with turning laboratory supplies of the virus into bioweapons, so the risk still exists. Specter and Rockefeller called for the development of a broader range of vaccines. There is a large number of biological threats for which the United States has no vaccine, Arlen Specter said. By the way, Arlen Specter is the guy who came up with the magic bullet theory. It also says that President Clinton last year ordered federal agencies to expand steps against possible chemical and biological attacks in the United States. His fiscal 2000 budget proposes boosting spending by $2.8 billion specifically to safeguard against such biological attacks. The Health and Human Services this year is spending $158 million to prepare for possible bioterrorism and is asking for $230 million for next year against bioterrorism. But around the same time that this article came out, U.S. AMRID, Fort Detrick, releases a video where they actually sort of scaremonger a little bit about the possibility of smallpox bioterrorism. And they talk about this thing hanging over our heads about these supposed laboratories that were weaponizing smallpox in the Soviet Union. I'll play you a clip from that. 
I'd like to comment for a few minutes on the Soviet program uh, and their development of, uh, of smallpox, morale and major. Uh, they first worked with uh, smallpox and immunated chicken eggs. And since a very small amount of material is produced in the egg, you, you can imagine the large numbers of eggs that were required to produce 100 metric tons of dried agent. Now, as their program advanced, uh, in a, starting in the early 90s, they were using tissue culture as a means of, of generating uh, the virus. But 100 metric tons loaded into an ICBM aimed at our major cities uh, is cause for worry. It's incredibly ironic that the great public health triumph of eradicating smallpox in the 1970s and the discontinuation of worldwide vaccination have opened the door for this virus to be once again used as a weapon. Now, what's the key takeaway there is that max vaccination that was being done pretty much 20 years before this video comes out is the reason she's stating for why the world was basically safe from the potential of smallpox bioterrorism, and now it's not. This is all the Clinton administration pre-9-11. And there would be more articles that would come out in the news that would be describing Bill Clinton's basically obsession with this idea. And these are all in the smallpox cache, by the way, in the folder called Reporting and Newspapers. You can find all these article clippings I'm citing from. Fearing terrorism... Bill Clinton keeps stockpiles of smallpox from the Sacramento Bee. Clinton has made the sad but prudent decision to delay the destruction of U.S. stores of the smallpox virus. That puts the United States at odds with the World Health Organization, which has called for the elimination this year of the last known stocks of the virus. And of course, going back into Russia, the only two known stocks of the virus reside in the freezers at medical research facilities in Russia and the United States. But intelligence officials, citing the testimony of a former Russian research official, now fear that some of the Russian virus may have been transferred to other less secure facilities, could have reached rogue states such as North Korea. That creates, in the worst case, the potential fear for its use as a weapon of biological terrorism, and also the heightened possibility of an accident. The United States and other countries would be vulnerable to smallpox. Most Americans under 30 haven't been vaccinated against the disease, and there are only small reserves of vaccine to use in the event of an outbreak. Now, this is an editorial where the author is saying that Clinton shouldn't have done this because it's not necessary to basically develop smallpox vaccine. And technically, he would be right. So what is really the reason why they wanted to keep smallpox around? Because at this time, they should have already genetically sequenced it, right? Sequenced the DNA in it. Wasn't that the reason they were keeping it around. So what's the reason why they're still studying it and they haven't eradicated it? I mean, is this a scientific reason that they're doing deciding this or is it for something else? Something more nefarious maybe to make this into maybe a biological weapon themselves as a as a failsafe. I I I mean, I'm just speculating, but I think these questions need to be raised and I do think we need to start raising the question of why why even before 9-11 and before even the anthrax attacks is there seemingly this push and some push back, as I read to you just now in this little Sacramento Bee report, about this idea of vaccinating the public against uh, smallpox. Why is this even seemingly being pushed in the late 90s during Clinton? What could possibly be the motive for this? Is this 
to line the pockets of some specific pharmaceutical company that's going to make smallpox vaccine? Is it to escalate some kind of aspect of some kind of geopolitical scenario flashpoint? Is it is it to have some kind of control or some kind of psychological tests on the American population? I mean, that sounds awfully conspiratorial, but I'm just trying to think of all the different possibilities of what could have actually really been motivating this. I just don't believe that these people who invent these catastrophic scenarios actually really believe they're going to happen. I believe they create these scenarios as a means to an end. So you really have to ask, what was this all for? That is more stuff in the official record about smallpox bioterrorism. This might be the most blatant thing that I could find of them all was a paper released by the Department of Defense, and this is in the smallpox cache. You can access this. It's called Chemical and Biological Defense Program. And the summary is, during the past year, DOD took several steps to ensure the protection of U.S. forces against both immediate and future chemical and biological threats. This report details DOD's current and planned capabilities. Highlights from the past year include immunization of all U.S. forces with the licensed anthrax vaccine, and continued enhancement of DOD CBDP funds to protect against validated and emerging threats through the far-term future. Now, when you pull up this document, if you're looking at it with the thumbnail view in the think tank and official U.S. government document folder, it's the prettiest looking one. And it looks kind of like a Mortal Kombat screenshot or something. It looks like a weird old school Photoshop with soldiers in army fatigues with gas masks on. And it's actually a terrible Photoshop. I mean, you can look at this shit. It's fucking amateur as fuck. But when you actually do a control F on this document for pox, as in smallpox, you'll get 26 results. And you'll find something saying that one of the issues is there is no currently licensed manufacturer for the smallpox vaccine. So what is the solution? The solution is that, well, we have 10 million doses of the vaccine. That doesn't really seem like a solution since there's 300 million people. And then it says another solution is that U.S. Amrit is developing antiviral drug for the treatment of smallpox if you're already infected. Well, that's not vaccination. And the additional development of more vaccinia immune globulin, VIG. It says this product is necessary for treatment of rare adverse effects that may occur after smallpox immunization. But if you keep going through the document, you can find many more references to smallpox as something that we need to basically be really, really concerned about as a future and potentially very real biological weapons threat. This is in March 2000, before Clinton even leaves office, that the Department of Defense is putting out these papers. And not much else happens materially, except for just more Bill Clinton bioterrorism talk and Richard Clark being appointed the counter-terror czar, which is basically a new position that Bill Clinton advents. And I should say that this new position that's taken by Richard Clark is not focused on hunting down Osama bin Laden or tracking al-Qaeda suspects who are on the terrorist wanted list, even though that's what Richard Clark would like you to think now when he spins his arguably limited hangouts 
about the CIA's let-it-happen-on-purpose behavior leading up to 9-11. And that narrative that he's putting out could very well be true. But what's interesting is, is how much the creation of his position had to do with the hype surrounding bioterrorism at the end of the Clinton administration. In fact, Richard Clark himself, if you look up C-SPAN videos of him from the 90s, before and after his Clinton appointment, pretty much all of these videos are about catastrophic imaginary forms of terrorism like bioterrorism or terrorism via chemical weapons or other catastrophic means. Now, I put together a really long two-part Media Roots Radio episode about four years ago now called Clinton's War on Terror. And in these episodes, I lay out a bunch of examples of how Clinton was also laying the foundations for what would become the War on Terror in the Bush administration. But there's a lot of clips in there of Richard Clark just fear-mongering about anthrax. But when I say not much else happened, I don't mean that people all of a sudden dropped this subject of bioterrorism and weren't doing anything about it or weren't trying to exploit it. Quite the opposite. You even have Senator Joe Biden in the late 90s and early 2000s hyping up anthrax and bioterrorism on the Senate floor before 9-11 even happens. What I mean is that not much new happened, just more of the same, more cranking up this fear-mongering about bioterrorism to the point where the talk about anthrax, Iraq, that thread continued from the Clinton administration into the Bush administration. And now we get to the election of George W. Bush, the Supreme Court appointment of George W. Bush, and he is inaugurated on January 20th, 2001. And there's actually not much talk you can find in between George W. Bush's election and the infamous dark winter exercise that happens in early summer 2001. But if anyone thinks there were any pivotal but if anyone thinks there are any pivotal things that occurred in the world of bioterrorism pontification in between these dates, please let me know. But from June 22nd to the 23rd, 2001, is Operation Dark Winter, smallpox bioterrorism exercise. It took place at Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland. It was put on by the Johns Hopkins Center for Civilian Biodefense Strategies, managed by Tara O'Toole, and Tom Inglesby of that agency. And it was co-sponsored by, of course, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. This starts with Middle Eastern terrorists releasing smallpox in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And keep in mind, this exercise happens only 11 days after Timothy McVeigh is executed for his alleged role in the Oklahoma City bombings. So this attack drill obviously was meant to have resonance with the Oklahoma City bombing. And it seems to be slightly baked in that there's a curveball in there that we don't know who caused this, but it's the militia groups and the sort of the super patriot types that we have to worry about in the initial waves of chaos surrounding the pandemic. Now keep in mind that there was already a lot of fear-mongering and news surrounding this idea of domestic terrorists, like white, right-wing militia types doing terrorist acts. People like Judith Miller 
and others in the late 90s were already reporting on how these alleged militia groups were vaccinating themselves against anthrax because they were planning to use anthrax. That type of fear-mongering was definitely already in the air. But this drill actually represented some kind of vague Middle Eastern terrorist group that's later described to be a group of terrorists from Afghanistan working with people in Iraq. Before the Bush administration, the neocons tried to push the three-way connection between Al-Qaeda, 9-11, and Iraq. This dark winter exercise has that baked in. But at first, there's sort of all this confusion in the exercise, like, what happened? Is this natural or not? I don't know exactly the mechanics in the exercise of how it's discovered that it's not natural, but they eventually decide it's terrorism, and they decide that the terrorists could be identified as terrorists in Afghanistan working with people in Iraq. And at the end of the exercise, there's these fake news stories that play into the script. The actual script and the actual events that happen in this exercise are much more in-depth than the fake newsreels that they generated. But what's fascinating is in the script and in one of the last newsreels, it talks about how China is censuring the United States at the UN for being responsible for unleashing smallpox back into the world. So even though at this point in the exercise it's already determined that this was a terrorist attack, somehow China gets involved and it condemns the United States. Well, what's so weird about that is in the real-life COVID-19 pandemic situation, all these bizarre and sus forces in the United States started to try really hard to blame China, specifically the idea that COVID was a Chinese bioweapon. They tried to blame the Chinese government on unleashing this onto the world. Of course, there was that wet market narrative that was also going for a while too, but the general tone was that China was to blame for this for some reason, either because of their unsanitary living conditions or in these wet markets, or because they're deviously making some kind of dangerous coronavirus-based bioweapon in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So it's us, the U.S., and others who have done that to China in this situation. So it's so weird that in the dark winter exercise, it's sort of making it seem like China would be the one to jump up and scream at the United States. So it sort of has a pinaki looking towards the future, looking decades into the future and sort of imagining these geopolitical scenarios really far down the road, like a confrontation with China. You know, in the year 2001, in the dark winter exercise, they're sort of echoing this frame that's already in PNAC's Rebuilding America's Defenses. This drill had many former U.S. officials playing the role of fake officials in this drill. Well, pretend real official jobs. For example, the governor of Oklahoma was played by Frank Keating, the actual former governor of Oklahoma that was governor during the Oklahoma City bombings. The director of the FBI was played by a man named William Sessions. Jerome Hauer, the real Jerome Hauer, basically played his real role as being the director of the Federal Emergency Management Agency. The director of the CIA in this drill, Dark Winter, was played by PNAC neocon and former director of the CIA who had a brief stint as director of the CIA under Bill Clinton, James Woolsey. 
But more interestingly, I think in this drill is that they actually have people playing the role of media personalities and they chose media personalities specifically, well, one of them I know for sure who had keen interest in bioweapons and was very, very close to certain Bush PNAC neocons like Scooter Libby. And that is Judith Miller, who participates in the drill as a New York Times reporter, which she actually was. They also have several other reporters filling in the roles of reporters. And I don't know for sure if all these people actually work for the agencies they were assigned to work for in these fake role-playing roles. But Jim Miklaszewski plays an NBC news reporter. Mary Walsh plays a CBS news reporter. C.N. Edwards plays a BBC reporter. And Lester Rheingold plays a freelance reporter. Now, there's really not much out there for any of these other reporters that's interesting or noteworthy. When you look up, for example, Lester Rheingold, you really only find stuff in like reference to Dark Winter. Judith Miller is the one who seemed very plugged into a sort of group of leakers and people within the national security state or the deep state who really wanted to fearmonger about bioterrorism. And Dark Winter leads to actual policy decision-making before 9-11, before the anthrax attacks. And I'm going to go into that more on the next episode. I know this was a hard place to leave off this episode at, right before 9-11, where, geez, we're only about three months away from the main event and only about four months away from the sequel to that event, the anthrax attacks. But I think what I'll do is leave you with some content from Operation Dark Winter as the outro to this podcast. Because if you haven't actually had a chance to sit down and listen to the released fake newscasts, I don't know how these actually got released, if they were part of the public domain or if they were released under some kind of freedom of information request, but these fake newscasts that were produced for Operation Dark Winter are all available on YouTube. There's about five of them in total. And I'm going to play the audio from all of them in order so you can hear sort of this imaginary smallpox bioterrorist attack drill unfold from the perspective of these fake media broadcasts that were shown to the participants in the drill. This was part of the drill. So enjoy this trip down Operation Dark Winter Lane. Good evening. We interrupt our regular programming to return to Southwest Medical Center and continuing coverage of the outbreak of a mystery sickness. Earlier today, hospital officials said they were admitting patients with symptoms that seemed to be severe adult chickenpox. But now we have new information. We go to Andy Field outside Southwest Medical Center. Good evening, Andy. What can you tell us? Sheila, we've been moved to an isolated area behind the hospital. And off the record, doctors here suspect that at least five patients hospitalized at Southwest may have smallpox. Now, for those of us who don't remember the disease, it is a deadly virus. We haven't seen it in this country in at least 20 years. Now, if this proves to be true, we can have a very serious health emergency on our hands. But officially, the hospital will not confirm or deny that diagnosis. And the problem is we don't have enough vaccine to go around. Meaning we don't have enough vaccine for the United States? Well, I would like to think that, but we don't have sufficient uh, stockpiles for the people in Oklahoma, Georgia, or Pennsylvania, much less for the entire United States population. Well, that certainly doesn't sound encouraging. What do you mean exactly? Angie, it means it could be a very dark winter for America. 
Sobering, thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Kavlik. We do continue to wait for official reaction to this developing situation. Now we go to a special report on the deadly effects of smallpox that led scientists to launch an eradication program thought to wipe out. On day six of the smallpox epidemic, the White House confirmed that federal government officials and military personnel are being vaccinated. 300 people have died. At least 2,000 are infected with smallpox. Smallpox symptoms are being seen in 15 states, also in Canada, Mexico, and England. The U.S. smallpox vaccine supply continues to shrink as officials try to stretch limited stocks to cover the entire nation. An official announcement regarding the remaining vaccine inventory is expected later today. Struggles to get vaccinated led to violence in some cities. Profound economic losses are crippling the nation. In Oklahoma alone, economic experts project severe losses in the state's multi-billion dollar agricultural commodities market. Still, no group claims responsibility for unleashing the deadly smallpox virus. But NCN has learned that Iraq may have provided the technology behind the attack to terrorist groups based in Afghanistan. We have a breaking story from Oklahoma. We go straight to Andy Fields of Oklahoma City's KMSA. Andy, are you there? Angie, Texas Governor Rick Parsons has now suspended all surface and air contact between Texas and Oklahoma. He has ordered his state troopers and the National Guard to seal the borders. Now, we're about a mile away from the Texas border here just near Interstate 35 and the Red River Bridge that connects the two states. The troopers here have taken the media to what they call a so-called safe spot. But as we've told you earlier today, Oklahomans by the carload have been seen leaving the state in every direction trying to escape this deadly smallpox outbreak. Now we have reports of vigilantes at the Texas border trying to stop people from coming over. I don't know if you just heard that. That was a shot fired. We've heard, there's another one. Now, we're not sure where these shots are coming from. We're a little too far away from the border to hear this here, but, but there have been shots. This is the second time in the hour we've heard this. The National Guard and the Oklahoma State Troopers are here with us. We're not certain who's doing the firing or if what we're hearing is return firing. There's another shot. It's starting to sound like a war zone. I'm Andy Field reporting. No other country in the world is accepting flights originating in or transiting the U.S. On day 12 of the worst public health crisis in America's history, demonstrations for more vaccine in hard-hit communities disintegrated into riots and looting around the nation. Interstate commerce has stopped in several regions of the nation. A national suspension of trading on America's stock exchanges takes effect tomorrow. International commerce with the U.S. has virtually ceased. The Centers for Disease Control report that efforts to stem the smallpox epidemic have depleted America's inventory of smallpox vaccine. While the CDC may be out of the vaccine, at least 45 Internet websites are now offering what they claim are safe, effective vaccines. These claims have not, we repeat, they have not been independently verified. Authorities urge caution. 
At least 25 states and 10 foreign countries are reporting smallpox infections. At the United Nations temporarily meeting in Geneva, China has sponsored a resolution to censure the U.S., blaming America for reintroducing smallpox to the world. It demands the U.S. supply the world with vaccine. Since the diagnosis of 20 smallpox cases in Oklahoma City 12 days ago, hundreds have now died, thousands have become infected. The latest figures show more than 15,000 new cases in the past week. Officials now question whether a single attack could be responsible for this outbreak pattern developing in the U.S. But they project that each two to three week period will see a minimum tenfold increase in new cases. So thank you for listening to Media Roots Radio. And thank you again for being a subscriber to Media Roots Radio. If you're hearing this episode before we've unlocked it, you are a subscriber. And we really appreciate your support. But if you're not currently a subscriber to Media Roots Radio, please consider becoming one for as little as $5 a month. You get access to all of our bonus podcasts before we decide to unlock them, sometimes months before. And a large amount of our bonus podcasts are never unlocked, like our Freemasonic History of the United States podcast series, which is now about 40 hours long. But I promise on part two of this episode, I'm going to go much deeper into the sort of bioterrorism, smallpox as a biological weapon fear-mongering that the Bush administration did, and how it almost took us into a direction of mandatory smallpox vaccination for the entire American public after 9-11, simply based on the fear-mongering and the hysteria, and no real possibility or scenario where a smallpox attack was imminent or likely. I mean, I'm saying the obvious here. Of course, it wasn't fucking likely. Of course, it wasn't imminent. I mean, yeah, this shit's all made up. But on next episode, you're going to get basically a walkthrough of what it was like in the Bush administration when they were trying to push this on us, trying to push this on the American public in the wake of 9-11. And it is a largely hidden story that was also piggybacking off of the anthrax attacks. Because to a lot of these policymakers, anthrax was nothing. It was just a drop in the bucket. It, it, it wasn't really that scary or terrifying. But what could come next after that was the terrifying scenario, and that was smallpox. So join us for part two of this episode in December on Media Roots Radio. Thanks a lot, everybody. Take care. And if you aren't already, please consider becoming a paying subscriber to Media Roots Radio. If you become one for as little as $5 a month, you get access to all of our bonus content. And we do one bonus episode per month. And right now, some of our bonus content includes a 40-hour-long mini-series called the Freemasonic History of the United States. You can become a subscriber at patreon.com slash Thanks again. <laughs>